Jack and Dora was a D&D setting that came out in 1998 and was comprised of three books, Isle of War, Isle of Destiny, and Land of Legend, which presented the setting from the perspective of the two major civilizations of the setting. The problem being, one side were megalomaniacal necromancers, and the other were a bloodthirsty warrior culture. So it was a little hard to figure out who to root for. But it's still fun to randomly post on social media, Jack and Dora confirmed! And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is like a warm blanket, which means sometimes we wake up all sweaty and tangled up in it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for 35 years. Over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast Stew's podcast since 2017. And in 2021, I kind of became head gnome. Accidentally. <laughs> and I am Jared. I am the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. And in addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site at whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journals, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where we look at our favorite settings. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. My campaign journal is going to be a little short this week. Um, while I did get to play D&D a couple of times since the last episode, the game that I GM was set aside so we could play a spooky one-shot. Instead of yeah. heading into the jungles of Zendrik, one of the other GMs in the group ran an Aliens escape where we were space marines tasked with boarding a renegade spaceship that was bringing biological contraband into the system. We found most of the crew turned into zombies full of psychic worms. In the end, we shot a spy on our side, blew up the renegade ship with extreme prejudice, and destroyed any of the worm samples we could find. And there was even an epilogue where worm samples were found <laughs> by somebody else. Of course. As far as what I played, Jared's going to talk about his play test that I took part in, but I also got to play... Selena, my battlemaster in my buddy Scott's Undermountain campaign. We had a pretty cool battle with some basilisks and a Balanoff, a very creepy monster I had never encountered before, which meant I was texting Jared asking questions about it <laughs> in the middle of the game. Would you like to phone a friend? <laughs> I'm like, hey, hey, does teleporting provoke opportunity attacks? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> One interesting thing about this fight was that usually I end up using my superiority dice to command the rogue to make an extra sneak attack, so we get that extra damage. <laughs> that didn't always work with this fight, so I got to try out some of my other maneuvers. Now, even though Selena is nominally a bossy character with all her battle commands, I tend to step back and let the rest of the group decide how we approach things, and this group tends to be a little more cautious and specific than I am, and I usually want to just move forward so with this group i take a slightly more passive role so i'm not impinging upon their fun with my lack of patience jared can attest to my tendency to leroy jenkins things and turn stuff into now problems hey look at that fireball going whizzing over us into the uh, <laughs> into the crowd this is a now problem <laughs> For the game I'm GMing, one exciting thing is that our next session is going to be in person. While most of the group is local, we have one member who lives a few hours away, so we've stayed virtual except for the two or three times a year she can make it here for a visit. She and one of the other players are cousins, so there's often family time coinciding with these visits. 
This is going to be my second time running the Depths of Zendrick campaign in person. We got to do it once earlier this summer combined with a very awesome smoker barbecue. For that session, I went out of my way to get full-size prints of the maps I'd set up in Shard for the encounters I knew they would be doing. I also dug through 11 boxes of Eberron <laughs> minis trying to find a corpse flower. I knew it was an uncommon in that set, and one of my players had 11 boxes that he hadn't opened yet. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it, but the damn mini I needed was in the 11th and last box I opened. <laughs> For this upcoming session, I don't have access to the big printer at work anymore due to a remodel. I'm not even sure where the printer is or if it's <laughs> even plugged in and connected to the network right now. In addition, because the campaign is headed into the exploration phase, I'm also not even exactly sure which encounters they're going to be running into, and it would probably be a little irresponsible of me to print poster-sized maps of <laughs> five different encounters, and they're only going to get to two of them. Instead, I'm putting my prep efforts into creating some map tokens for the encounter. I may not be able to have the maps, but I can at least have the correct minis slash tokens. Uh, this is a trick I picked up from one of the other Matinee Adventures GMs that I run games with at conventions. All you need is a printer a metal washer of the correct size, and a matching clear epoxy sticker. And a glue stick, that's kind of important. Print the picture out, cut it out, glue it to the washer, put the epoxy sticker on it, and like, hey, that's actually a pretty cool mini <laughs> for a f on the fly without having to spend scads of money buying the exact correct mini you need. So my jam prep time is all arts and crafts, and next episode I will have a full report on how the session went. Yeah, what's really funny is before um, Watsi started doing the official minis and, you know, the the maps and the map tiles and everything, at the end of 3rd edition, the beginning of 3.5, I went through so much printer ink. <laughs> and I would sit here, like, part of my prep was printing out tokens and then cutting them out and then printing out the, the maps that we were going to put together. And it was ridiculous, and I don't know how I ever survived doing that much prep work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, as long as you enjoyed it back then. Yeah. I mean, it's totally okay to look back on it and be like, what was I thinking? But as long as you enjoyed it back then, that's all that matters. It was also weird because I was working 12-hour shifts, so I would be off for like three days straight. So it was a little bit, you know, different time-wise, but that's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get to run our regular Midgard campaign because we had some players that were under the weather, unfortunately. But we did last Wednesday get to do our uh, playtest game, which we kind of talked about a little bit in the last recording. Basically, I just wanted to run something that was just using the one D&D rules. I graciously had several of, of the people that I uh, that are some of my gaming buddies, and we made up some third level characters, and it was a very expert heavy group. While I just wanted everyone to make sure they were using the one D&D &D rules, a lot of people specifically wanted to try out the classes that had come up in the expert part. I mean, they're right there. You, oh, yeah, definitely. Right there. Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad you did, too. We had a rogue, a ranger, a bard, and a sorcerer. Everybody was third levels, so we could at least touch on, like, the subclasses and see how those were going to start off. So we had an Ardling rogue with the thief subclass, an orc ranger with the hunter subclass, a human bard with the College of Lore subclass, and a half-elf sorcerer with the Draconic Bloodline subclass. So I joked going into this game that because it wasn't a campaign, <laughs> I wasn't going to put any story into it. Uh-huh. But <laughs> I can't help but put stories into RPGs because that's actually what I enjoy. Even if it's not a super in-depth story, going into this playtest, I had everyone explain how they got hired to go 
look for this uh, holy relic that was being held in this location, then talk about how they met each other before they started heading out to the dungeon. I like it because I think people should have at least a little bit of investment in their characters. And anytime you let somebody customize their character, especially in play in front of everybody else, I think it does build a little bit more investment there. Definitely does. I mean, it didn't necessarily matter as much for this particular game, but no. it's still, still a nice little bit of flavor. Yeah, you want to have some feeling, even if it's a playtest. Yeah, at least I, my thought process. Yeah, and I mean, um, I think I think each of the characters ended up having a little bit of personality mm-hmm. from that little bit of interaction we did at the end, yeah. and then the way things went through the rest of <laughs> this very fateful dungeon. So because this was a playtest, I wanted to make sure I was using the current rules for encounter building, and I was using the encounter builder on D&D Beyond for everything. So I varied everything from moderate to deadly. <laughs> um, there was only two that were actually deadly according to the encounter building rules, and one of them was something they probably shouldn't have gotten into a fight with. The other one was going to be the boss fight. We'll see how those difficulties shook out as we continue to <laughs> discuss this. <laughs> But um, as it turned out, um, the encounters that we played through ended up being two of the hard encounters and a moderate encounter. Given my past experience with the encounter building rules, especially when using groups of monsters because of how things multiply so that, you know, it's not just a flat, this is how many XP you have, but things are worth more XP when there are more of them. I was kind of surprised that our hard encounters did actually feel hard. In our first one, our orc ranger went down, and in the second hard encounter, two of our PCs died. <laughs> so that's how the hard encounters went. It, I think it is imp- important to point out we did not have a balanced party. Yes. While the rogue had some healing, it wasn't enough. And while the ranger was deadly and much improved in the new version, he was not a tank by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because the ranger was definitely dealing more damage, but if you look back at 4th edition, he was definitely an effective striker. He was not a tank. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a pretty straightforward dungeon crawl. I had the PCs make a few checks to see how tired they were when they got to the dungeon because I wanted to simulate the overland travel there, and also I kind of wanted to touch on the new exhaustion rules. Then we had the group um, have a chance to negotiate with a group of bandits. <laughs> Which would have gone really well, but, and I love this, this is nothing that I thought was wrong, but uh, Anja's Ardling decided to try and intimidate them when she wasn't one of the main uh, charisma forces in the party. Now, now, let me point out, my Ardling was a small squirrel Ardling. Nori was mostly tail and a whole lot of attitude, and... Did not roll very well on that intimidation roll, even with advantage. She had advantage because she used thaumaturgy first, which I can just picture as this gigantic, poofed-out, holy-looking tail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, but yeah, and I wanted to basically, you know, if they would have offered the bandits anything, they would have had the DC-10 that shows up in that interaction set of rules. But if they don't offer them anything, I was going to give them the DC-20, because I wanted to use the DCs that were being thrown around in that document. As it was, since they didn't negotiate, they were just trying to drive them off. The DC was 20, they didn't hit the DC, so we ended up having the fight. I also made sure that since we were outdoors and a lot of the Unearthed Arcana feats deal with things like ignoring cover or things of that nature, 
I wanted to make sure that I was marking things on the map as to what level of cover they were. And it was interesting because I noticed just by having those marked, people definitely gravitated towards using cover more because it was marked right on the map saying that this was three quarters cover or this was partial cover. I think cover is one of those things in the game as it stands. Everyone knows it's a thing, but doesn't really mm-hmm. know how to use it and it's like because it was very obviously there on the map it's like oh hey i can i can use this it's not overly frustrating for the gm because if you have someone using ranged attacks yes it makes it harder for them to use ranged attacks but then that also encourages you to have your people you know your npcs actually move up to someone so that they can melee them so i mean i liked it i thought it actually worked out pretty well i had a lot of fun with that encounter several people ran away um, we had some interesting family dynamics between some of the bandits <laughs> that was going on there. Jared has to put story in. All the bandits were related and had a reason for being in that bandit company. <laughs> so I had two entrances to the dungeon, and um, one of them, I had everyone roll a perception check to see if they noticed it. The second one, the second uh, entrance, didn't have the uh, collapsing ceiling trap on it. So it was a little easier for them to get in through that one, and they didn't have to deal with a trap. The first room they went into was this big round room with two levers in it. And I told them as soon as everyone walked in the room, both the doors slid shut and they heard a hissing noise. They figured out pretty quickly the hissing noise was probably gas. And Ange tried pulling one lever, and it didn't do anything. So they decided to throw two levers at the same time, and it shut off the gas, but then the suits of armor and swords animated. That was our moderate encounter. It didn't do a whole lot of damage. Although, I do think that your Ardling taking the uh, that sword critical to the face was actually a lasting consequence there for the next encounter. I also didn't call out that I was hurt and ask for any healing going into the next room. But we didn't quite expect what was coming in the next room. <laughs> so the next room looked almost exactly like the first room, except in between the two levers was this pool of acid. So, the orc ranger and the uh, ardling go to the levers and pull them at the same time, just like they did in the previous one. As it turned out, because this is a playtest and I got my my inner mean DM out, both of the levers in this room were mimics. So, (laughs) we got two party members stuck to mimics right off the bat. Yep, we started the encounter stuck. (laughs) So... The other thing that I felt bad for, but at the same time I, I really liked, was that um, the ranger, PK, his ranger was doing was using a lot of the uh, cantrips. Like, one of his two-weapon fighting was using a shillelagh, and he also was using a thorn whip to kind of reposition things. It's really interesting seeing that now that, you know, this version of the ranger has cantrips that can do things like that. And cantrips in 5th edition are definitely a utility that are worth using. The downside was he pulled the Mimic into the acid uh, pool and Mimics are immune to acid. Yeah. So. (laughs) I don't think any of us really knew that they were immune to acid, but it was like, no, I guess that makes sense. They kind of drool acid. The nice thing was Brandon's bard did not get to do a lot of damage to the armor or weapons because all of his prepared spells were doing psychic damage. So now that we were in this room, he could actually do psychic damage to the Mimic. This was one of my favorite scenes because the Mimic was glued to the Orc Ranger and was terrified and was running. And because it was grappling someone, it had the slowed condition and Mimics move at 15 feet. That means this terrified Mimic screamed and ran as fast as possible and moved five feet. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the 
bard got a little too close to the mimic and the mimic started biting the bard. Unfortunately, our Ardling Rogue got a little isolated from the rest of the party on the other side of the acid pool. Honestly, I don't usually do like killer GM things like hitting people when they're down at zero hit points. But at the same time, when you're talking about mimics that aren't that bright and just want to eat things, I had the mimics start chewing on them when they're at zero hit points. The funny thing was, is Angie's Ardling, I missed with a <laughs> with advantage on her when I was trying to chew her at zero hit points, but then she rolled a terrible death save after that. <laughs> I have never rolled that poorly on death saves in my entire history of fifth edition play. I did not succeed on a single one. I failed each one sub, you know, like I think I got a four, a six and a nine. Now, Brandon's bard, Brandon's bard, you, he got two death saves at once yeah. because you successfully chomped on him with the, oh, yeah. the mimic. Yeah, he he made his first death save, then he failed the second one, and then the mimic chomped on him, and he got two death saves from the uh, critical, and he was down. So, since we um, had 50% of the party had died, we decided to call the playtest there. <laughs> but I do think we learned some interesting stuff there. I think that the ranger... Definitely came out feeling pretty good from that. I don't think they're drastically different from previous Rangers at that level if you took the Hunter subclass. But I do think that those, I do think the cantrips were doing, you know, a little bit of extra tactical work in those encounters. And I also think the fact that um, PK could use his bonus action because of the two weapon fighting. Yeah. It definitely helps the Ranger. I mean, it helps the Rogue too. But I really think it helps the ranger because then they can keep using those bonus actions to stack things like Hunter's Mark onto things. I was thinking, because I've always enjoyed playing an archery-based ranger, and I'm not sure that the changes made would really help an archery-based ranger at all. I want to, at some point, maybe make a character and see what the playstyle ends up being like for that character. Because yeah, you're not getting that second attack out of that, so you're still, if you're archery-based, you're still just using your bonus actions to set the hunter's mark and, you know, do things yeah. like that. And PK very much leaned into using the cantrips mm -hmm. to assist his two-weapon fighting. Oh, yeah. I don't think the rogue felt a lot different one way or the other in this. I think we had a lot of instances where taking away the uh, sneak attack off of your turn would have made a much of a difference. That bard had no business being in that dungeon. Oh my gosh. I was going to ask you though about, you know, the, the Ardling itself. How did you enjoy the Ardling? Because this is a new character option. I like the Ardling. I need more information. What they put out in the first playtest document is... Yeah, because it's a little sparse It's in very there. bare bones. I mean, I, I leaned into... Like, the description doesn't necessarily declare that it's an anthropomorphic animal, more that it's just a person with an animal's face. And I'm like, <laughs> if I'm going to do this, I want a tail. I'm a squirrel. Yeah. I want a tail. <laughs> I was a little surprised to realize that the Ardling doesn't get dark vision. But then I also don't know, does an Asimar get dark vision? Because if they don't, I guess that makes sense. I do not remember offhand. Yeah, but I mean, otherwise, I was I was like, okay, the Ardling is fine. It needs a little more narrative clarification, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's no art for Ardlings out there. And I mean, I, I very carefully did a Google search for anthropomorphic <laughs> squirrel art because I know what is out there. 
that you can stumble onto, but I did find a very cute piece of artwork to represent Nori, my little <laughs> rogue squirrel ardling. But I, I liked it. I liked it. It wasn't necessarily, I'm in love with this. Yeah. But I liked it, and I did get to use the divine favor at least once. I probably should have used it later, <laughs> but didn't get a chance before getting eaten by a mimic. So there you go. I do think PK's ranger might have run into a few more problems as we got further in, because he was using a lot of the spell slots to do the things like he still had his bonus action free, but that hunter's mark still costs you that spell slot when you cast it in the encounter. Yeah. I still feel that Bardic inspiration and the hunter's mark, they don't get him enough. No. And the thing that was really interesting to me about the bard, you know, we had, we had already talked about how we don't think they get enough inspiration. And I think the play test. So at least as far as we saw, kind of bore that out. And also that they, they were going to have a hard time being a primary healer because they don't get like cure wounds. They only get healing word also because using the reaction for bardic inspiration to heal someone can only be done when someone takes damage. That definitely hit our crew because if the bard didn't have the opportunity to heal somebody right away, they weren't going to get healed. He only had two uses of bardic inspiration anyway. Oh yeah. But the other thing that I never thought of that I think really did hurt him was changing the bard into a prepared caster. He specifically prepared a lot of psychic damage spells, and that really edged him out of that fight with the constructs. And normally, if you're making a bard and you just know a certain number of spells, and let's say you know something that does psychic damage, you know something that does thunder damage, you know both of those things. You're not going to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to prepare everything to be all psychic damage. That's one of those things where if you're not used to that idea of needing more than one damage type, that's not something bards at this point really need to worry about. But now they do because they are preparing specific spells. I'm very confused about why they made that change with the bard. The bard did not come out looking good in this, <laughs> this particular <No>. scenario. <laughs> We did also have another uh, Scorching Ray crit. So apparently Eileen is just really good <laughs> at getting Scorching Ray crits. Yeah. All right. Should we head into the workshop? Well, let's head into the workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. All right. Today in the Dungeon Master's Workshop, we wanted to look at different D&D settings that we have played in and talk about which ones are our favorites and why. So um, let's start off. Ange, what settings are you familiar with? So, first off, let's say that a lot of my very early play was in what I would call generic D&D. <laughs> it might have been Greyhawk, but I don't think the setting really mattered much back in those days, at least not to me as a player, and I don't feel like it ever meant much to the GM either. Whatever it was, it just didn't matter. <laughs> I suppose I can say that I got a little bit of Forgotten Realms and Spelljammer back in those days. There was also a very brief foray into the Harn setting, which had us all TPK'd in the first session because we rolled poorly walking through a forest. Ah, <laughs> oh, the glory days of teenage D&D in the 80s. In modern times, i.e. since 2000, I have either run or played in Forgotten Realms, Eberron, Galarian, Midgard, Streets of Avalon, and my friend's homebrew world of Silua. Um, that he's been running and building since 1995. There are many more settings that I have a minimal understanding of, but those are the ones I've actually played in. As a side note on Galarian, even if you don't count Pathfinder as a variation of D&D, &D, which I would 
totally argue it is. <laughs> the first few adventure paths and the first season of Pathfinder Society were all written for D&D 3.5 rules. In uh, my lifetime history, I have played in homebrew settings. Um, I think that's fairly common for, you know, most people. Um, I've played in Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, Ravenloft, Lankmar, Karatur, Known World, or Mastara. I've, I've played in it when it was named both of those things and run <laughs> games in it. Pathfinder's Galarian, Eberron, the Nentervale for 4th uh, edition. The games that I have run specifically have been my own homebrew world that was kind of the known world from the expert set that I, you know, extrapolated on myself and didn't pay attention to any of the Gazetteers. And then I transitioned to the Forgotten Realms. I ran Dragonlance, Spelljammer, Planescape, Galarian, and Kobold Press's Midgard settings, and also the Streets of Avalon setting. And out of all of those, which do you have one that you are especially fond of? Oh, Eberron. Hands down, Eberron. <laughs> Eberron came out at a time when I was getting back into tabletop RPGs. And it allowed me to get in the ground floor of a game's world without feeling overwhelmed like I did with Forgotten Realms back in those days. While it wasn't the first campaign I played with my current beloved longtime group, it was one of the early ones that bonded us together. There's just something about the pulp adventure and steampunk nature of Eberron I adore. Now, as a quick historical note, Eberron is the result of a contest Wizards of the Coast ran in 2002 for a new D&D setting. They had 11,000 one-page pitch submissions, which were eventually whittled down to 11 submissions where the author submitted a more detailed 10-page document. Those 11 were winnowed, winnowed down to the three finalists, Keith Baker, Rich Burlew, and Nathan Toomey. All three were flown out to Wizards of the Coast offices to talk to the R&D team in person, after which they each created a 125-page setting Bible and out of those, eventually, they chose Keith Baker's setting, which is what became Eberron. I love that story. And <laughs> they actually bought the rights to Rich Burlew and Nathan Toomey's settings. So those will probably never see the light of day. <laughs> uh, Rich Burlew, if you're not aware, writes the absolutely amazing Order of the Stick webcomic. And he has talked about this whole scenario in the past. And he's not like... Sure, he wishes he could do something with his setting, mm -hmm. but it was a pretty cool experience, and he got to launch Order of the Stick out of it, and, you know, it's pretty cool. And if I remember correctly, someone that wasn't in those those three finalists actually took their setting and got it published as a third-party thing, but I do not remember the name of it now. I think there were a couple of those. I remember at... Gen Con in 2006, one of the vendors that just had a ton of books and would always put them on like mega sale on uh, Sunday had a couple of those. And I bought one of them that was this was this was a submission for the Wizards of the Coast <laughs> setting adventure. And I have no idea what level it got, like if it was one of the 11 that got a more detailed document or if it was just, hey, I submitted this and then I published it. Yeah. But I remember getting that and then giving it away as a gift to somebody <laughs> and it's never been seen since. So beyond the current campaign I'm running, which is set in Eberron, I've also ran a previous campaign that was quite successful. That campaign, the Veterans of the Gauntlet, I made use of the Last War, Sharn, the Draconic Prophecy, and they got to travel to several different locations on their overarching quest. 
I adored reading through the source books of the setting and picking up on little bits of lore and expanding it even further. At this point, I'm honestly not even sure which bits of the game were official pieces of lore <laughs> or things which I expanded upon. For example, one of the relics they needed to retrieve in the Veterans of the Gauntlet game was held by the ogre mage Tazarian Rock, based in Drome, and in the game, he was a thorn in the side of the sisters of Zorakel, the hags that ruled Drome. So they allowed the PCs to continue on their mission, even though it meant allowing this adventuring party into their, you know, monster country. <laughs> like one of the things I love about Eberron is that the setting provides a deep and rich lore, but enough room for the players and GMs to add their own flavor to things. And because they don't advance the timeline of the setting much, there's no future canon to break. You can see in some other settings, no shade on those settings, <laughs> but sometimes it can be a little overwhelming if you were familiar with the setting 10 years ago and come up with a plot idea and then find out that plot idea is irrelevant because of the <laughs> spell plague that happened or something. It, like you know. Spoilers for other uh, settings we might be talking about, <laughs> or maybe another setting that had like three different cataclysms happen to it. <laughs> Speaking of such a setting. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I was going to say like the main thing that I'm going to have to talk about first is Forgotten Realms. It has changed a lot over time, and I will admit that a lot of my love for the Forgotten Realms comes from actually kind of being in the same spot Ange was talking about with Eberron, because I remember seeing the ads in comic books for it coming out in 1987 and getting that gray box set as soon as I saw it in the bookstore. So I was literally on the ground floor of the Forgotten Realms, you know, in, in on that from the very beginning. And since Ange went down memory lane about uh, where Eberron came from, I was going to throw this in here too. Ed Greenwood has been writing stories in the Forgotten Realms since he was a little kid. This was his private playground of everything that he threw in there. Like, if he read something from Fritz Lieber, you know, the Fafford and Mauser stories, that influenced it. You know, if he read Conan, that influenced it. If he read Lord of the Rings, that influenced it. So there were a, a bunch of different things that were in his head as he was writing these stories. And what's funny is even before it became an official setting, he would write Dragon Magazine articles. And ostensibly, the Dragon Magazine articles were just, hey, here's a bunch of new spells for your game. But Ed couldn't just write, here's five new spells for your game. He wrote five or six additional pages explaining where these spell books came from and what city they were from and what wizards, you know, originally had them. And all of that was taken out of his histories of the Forgotten Realms. So when TSR was shopping for a new setting, they came to Ed and said, hey, can we buy this and publish this as a setting? And apparently what Ed Greenwood told Jeff Grubb at that point in time was, I had been publishing this stuff in Dragon Magazine. I figured you guys already owned it. And Jeff Grubb said, I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear you say that. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, Ange, how would you shorthand Eberron for somebody that uh, hadn't dove into it before? Eberron is D&D is viewed through the lens focused on noir, mystery, and pulp adventure. It's a place with a deep history but modern troubles that the denizens of the world, NPCs and PCs alike, need to navigate. Though they are ostensibly in a time of peace after a hundred years of war shattered the kingdom of Corvair, there is a sense that war could ignite again at any time. In many ways, it's the D&D you know and love, but with a more industrialized feel. 
It's a setting of airships and magically powered trains and an economy of low-level magical technology filtering into everyone's daily lives. So have you had experience with Eberron? The funny thing was when it was first coming out in 3.5, that was towards the era when Wizards was putting out like literally a hardcover book every month. So <laughs> you would have like a Forgotten Realms hardcover, an Eberron hardcover, and then the core rules expansions like the Tome of Magic or whatever was coming out, you know, the Book of Nine Swords. I never picked up Eberron because I was stressing my hobby budget just to keep up with the Forgotten Realms releases and the core book releases. It looked really cool. But I figured, well, I'm on this train for the Forgotten Realms, so I'm going to stick here. And on top of that, um, they weren't coming out nearly as frequently, but I was also picking up the 3.5 releases that Margaret Weiss Production was doing for Dragonlance, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about in a little bit. My budget was not allowing me to get into Eberron at the time. I actually started looking at it a little bit more in 4th edition because there were some people at the local game store that were running it as a uh, one of their 4th edition campaigns. But I have really definitely dove into it going into like 5th edition. Like even before the Shadows of the Last War showed up, I was uh, starting to get the 3-5, the bundles that had the old 3-5 books in them. Yeah, there's still some of those books I need. Oh yeah, and they're they're great. I mean, they really are. It it, provi it they provided such a vibrant look at a new setting. It was great. So I am a fan. I've played an orc bard that was based on Belloc from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> if he had a redemption arc, I'd just like to throw that in there too. And also, I ran a campaign using the quest RPG set in Sharn, which Ange was in that game as well. So I have not used it for uh, D&D on, you know, as far as a DM, because I'm weird, and I decided to <laughs> make my first foray something that I had to uh, patch together in another RPG. I I, I loved the Above the Fold campaign. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. It was it was so very Sharn. <laughs> like, out of everything I've ever played, even if it wasn't in D&D, that made me feel like I was in Sharn. I appreciate that, because that was a lot of fun, and Sharn is just such a great setting. So what are your thoughts about the Forgotten Realms? How detailed have you ever gotten into a Forgotten Realms game? So I have a complicated relationship with the Forgotten Realms. As I mentioned, when I brushed up against it in the 80s and 90s, I was kind of overwhelmed. It was so big and important that I felt like I was failing as a player for not knowing more. Mm -hmm. This obviously started changing a little bit when there were more books being published using the setting. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously the R.I. Salvatore books and the video games i actually didn't play baldur's gate when it came out but i played the hell out of both icewind dale and icewind dale 2 i know i'm weird and i know we've talked about this before i like icewind dale better than baldur's gate and i know yeah. a lot of people would think that's heretical but i love that game i really did I despise second edition <laughs> and the problem is is baldur's gate is second edition and I tried playing them and just got angry because <laughs> I, ew. and like Icewind Dale the first one is second edition but I believe the second one is a little more mm -hmm. like it's it's either not fully three third edition but it's not fully second edition anymore it's kind of like what the 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 expansion that they did for uh, Baldur's Gate 2 did that too where it sort of introduced some concepts from 3rd edition into into yeah. the engine. And then there was Neverwinter Nights. Mm -hmm. I love Neverwinter Nights. So like those things started getting me more comfortable 
with the setting. And then by the time I was fully into running games, it was like, oh, I can I can play in the setting and not feel like I'm a failure as a player. And my friend Jen ran the um, Horde of the Dragon Queen mm-hmm. and Tyranny of the Dragon. Basically, we fought Tiamat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was cool. And then I ended up running f- for my group. I ended up running Waterdeep Dragon Heist for my group. It was fine. I just allowed the group to kind of get a little bit out of control. <laughs> uh, I had two bards in the group and it just ended up. There was absolutely no reason this party should be together because everyone absolutely despised <laughs> both bards for no reason. Oh, goodness. I mean, they were bards, but it was still just they played it up too much. And I'm just like, I don't like PvP and you guys are making me <laughs> sad here. But I am much more comfortable with the setting at this point and don't have that, you know, like going into 2000, I was like, oh, the Forgotten Realms, it's intimidating and overwhelming. But I'm I'm well past that at this point. I can kind of you know, enjoy the setting for what it is. The thing that I've always thought was interesting is I know a lot of people look at the Forgotten Realms as like the kitchen sink setting, like everything is in here. And they tend to say it doesn't have any flavor because there's too much stuff in it. I think the thing is, especially if you started reading it when I did in second edition, they got away from this in a lot of the source books, but especially in first edition. And then in the Volos guides that came out in second edition, things were written from a person's point of view you were reading um, these entries that Elminster wrote. So it wasn't somebody just dryly saying Waterdeep has this many people, you know, this, you know, there's this many wizards. You were getting like some of Elminster's, you know, snide comments about, you know, this person thinks they're an accomplished wizard, but, you know, check back with me in 500 years. (laughs) And that level of personality I was not used to because honestly, not to draw direct comparisons, but Greyhawk was a lot more dry and it was a lot more trying to emulate this is what medieval Europe would look like, but also there is magic. Whereas the Forgotten Realms is a little more like, yeah, it's sort of like medieval Europe, but also it's just a fantasy setting. I think a lot of that came from Ed Greenwood was a lot more influenced by people like uh, Fritz Lieber and Tolkien. So he was okay with presenting a fantasy setting that didn't directly map to Earth. It just happens to have swords and dragons. Yeah, I, I always felt like Greyhawk took itself seriously. Like, and, 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 you know, this isn't to say there's anything bad about Greyhawk, because it was a very foundational setting for a lot of what came from D&D. I think Forgotten Realms definitely leaned more into, this is a place of magic and wonder. And also, I just love the fact that adventuring companies were a thing. Not just that people went out and had adventures, but literally... You would name your adventuring company and you would go into a bar and some bard would talk about this other adventuring company from, you know, this generations back that did this thing. And you tried to do that thing because they did that. And honestly, the entire concept of the Yawning Portal with uh, Undermountain and everything is so Forgotten Realms because it is this thing where you can pay some money and get lowered down into a dungeon. And then if you survive (laughs) and come back up, you can tell people I've been to Undermountain. You know, and it's a thing among adventurers, like the Yawning Portal itself is an adventurer's tavern. (laughs) That is the kind of feel that I like out of the Forgotten Realms. And I do think in second edition and in third edition, at times they lost that feeling. I especially think like when they started trying to do things like tacking on uh, Mastica and the Horde lands, and they basically kind of felt like we took this from the dictionary, but changed the uh, proper nouns so that now you have Mongolia attached to the Forgotten Realms. (laughs) 
Oh, and also there's like one wizard. <laughs> it's like. Well, I mean, we'll get into this a little later, but like in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there was a glut of settings. And I think in like they tried solving a little bit by that, attaching some of them to the Forgotten Realms. And Yeah, it's not. A, it's just sort of another setting. It's. <laughs> <laughs> So we've talked about the first ones that come to mind. What is another setting that comes to mind that you really like out of the ones you come across? Now, mind you, this setting I'm going to talk about is not a published setting. There are probably thousands of settings just like it. And honestly, the Forgotten Realms probably would have stayed one just like it if Ed Greenwood hadn't been ambitious and started writing for Dragon Magazine (laughs) about it. But it's a single GM's labor of love that never leaves the confines of their game group. I wanted to make sure we touched on the concept of homebrew settings because these can be just as amazing as any of the published settings we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Silua is my buddy Tristan's setting. Uh, He started creating it back in 1995, and he has run four campaigns in the setting, one for each edition of the game since its creation. There was one for second edition, one for third edition, and I had the privilege of being in the one for fourth and the one that is currently running for fifth edition. One of the things that I love that Tristan does with Silua is something that Keith Baker, the original creator of Everon, espouses for that setting. Everything that exists in D&D can exist in this world. It's just a matter of working out the details. When we were creating the characters for his fourth edition campaign, The Ladies of Fazdal, I asked if I could play a changeling rogue. Rather than tell me that changelings didn't exist in his world because they had never been there before, We discussed the idea, came up with how changelings fit in the world, and created a whole mythology to go along with them. In this world, they were more like changelings of real-world mythology, a fey replacement child, a babe whose change shape was an omen of prosperity for a good family or an omen of ruin for a bad family. The problem is, does a family take a chance that they've been good enough to appease (laughs) the fey, or do they let the guilt of their misdeeds consume them? As a result, this fed into my character's background of how she was abandoned as a babe in the dark of the night and raised in the slums of a city only to eventually be sold to the Assassin's Guild. I love this stuff so much (laughs) and informed the character that Z became. Another cool thing he does is he advances the timeline of the world every time a campaign finishes. Now, I know I said one of the nice things about Eberron is that the timeline doesn't advance, but in a personal setting, like this, having that timeline advance gives the world a, a sense of lived-in continuity. He usually advances about 20 years. In the Ladies of Fazdell campaign, we ran into NPCs that had been the protagonists of the previous campaign, now seasoned, older adventurers seeking to redeem themselves for the mistakes they made in the past, i.e., the campaign that they never properly finished. (laughs) In our current campaign, the City of Cowls, we have encountered all three of the ladies. Z, my changeling rogue, became the Faceless Lady, a mysterious underworld force that's secretly in service to the King and Queen of Valorios. Nyx, the terrifying gnome illusionist, became the head of the White Lotus Academy, the premier magical college in the land. And Ashar, the Genasi sword mage, married the prince we rescued to become the Queen of Pelorios. It gives this the world a sense that just this is all supposed to be you know like you are part of this story yeah and honestly i think when you mentioned that about advancing the timeline i think that's also a thing that it's important who is advancing the timeline and why 
And when you have one GM that is doing that for their setting, they have a better idea of what they want to turn the knobs on and change. And, you know, and sometimes when it is a group or a company that's doing it because they feel like doing it, sometimes it doesn't come across as organically for not to get too negative. But for example, I had a hard time clicking with the fourth edition Forgotten Realms because it shoots ahead a hundred years and a lot of the places when I was reading the fourth edition book, it's like, I don't recognize anything here. This isn't just that this thing that was here is now a hundred years older. It's like, this is something completely new that I've never seen before. And that is actually why when we got to, um, when they released the Neverwinter set later in fourth edition, I loved that because that really went back to like a hundred years ago, this was happening and this is what's happened in those hundred years. And it felt like a lot more direct. Like, I recognize that Neverwinter, even if it was a Neverwinter that was 100 years later. Like, I think sometimes that can work for a game setting. I really used to love Shadowrun's lore mm -hmm. um, as they built that game up in the late 80s and 90s. It's kind of gone past where <laughs> I, f I follow it. But, you know, like, sometimes that advancing the timeline can work. And sometimes it's not always fluid. <laughs> Speaking of advancing timelines when it's not necessarily fluid, I was <laughs> going to bring up Dragonlance as my next setting that I was going to talk about. But before I did that, I wanted to make sure you didn't have anything else you wanted to talk about Slua for, because <laughs> if I get going on Dragonlance... <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I just want to say that Silua is a setting where the heroes are the ones who rise up to fight against the forces of chaos and entropy that only want to see everything torn down while the world burns. These heroes are people who find themselves involved in a destiny beyond what they thought they were meant for, and the world needs them to step up and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And because it's a homebrew setting, the GM works with each player to fit their character into the world in a way I don't think I've seen in a published setting. Mm -hmm. And these characters feel important and necessary for the story we're telling. That's pretty much all I wanted to say about Silua. <laughs> so let's talk about Dragonlance. Okay. So... This is about to become a lot more relevant by the end of this month, <laughs> but I want to talk about Dragonlance. Forgotten Realms is the setting that got me hooked on settings, but Dragonlance is the setting that got me hooked on stories behind settings and just really living in that setting and getting that, that whole feel for what was going on there. Dragonlance is a lot more serialized with ongoing events that sweep across like a whole continent. It's not like the Forgotten Realms where you become like a famous rock star for doing this one thing. It's that you basically become a legend because you stopped this massive thing from happening. It is a very epic world with major things happening. A lot of it hinges on the War of the Lance, which is the big event of the setting where the forces of evil come back after being gone for a long time. The gods have not been around for 300 years. There haven't been dragons for a thousand years. All of a sudden, this big war to keep out this evil from taking over the world. It's not a setting where there are regional things going on. This is something where it's like a whole continental worldwide war breaking out everywhere. And it has to do with the gods. If the forgotten realms is a little bit more like the Hobbit in that, you know, you gather a group of people to go get treasure and then stuff happens. <laughs> Dragonlance is a lot more like Lord of the Rings. Like this ancient evil has come back and now you are all banding together to do this thing. Time travel features in the story at one point. One of the best products I've ever seen for Dragonlance was the 3.5 book Legend of the Twins because it actually took a really neat tack in it where it would tell you 
here is a major event that happened in, in uh, Dragonlance history. If you want to run in that time period, here is one thing that could have changed, and then you can run this campaign this way. So, like, they have a campaign in there that, for example, is what if Sturm hadn't died at the uh, High Clarus Tower? I almost stopped because I'm like, ah, it's spoilers, but then again, that book has been out since the 80s. I have to slightly interject here. I got my brother hooked on reading by handing him my Dragonlance book back in the 80s. <laughs> and I think he, he may have had a tiny bit of dyslexia mm -hmm. because he read Sturm's name as Strum. <laughs> and to this day, he cannot pronounce it correctly. <laughs> like that name is embedded in his brain uh -huh. as Strum, no matter how it's actually spelled. Sorry, I just had to interject that. No, that's okay. But also, here's a vulnerable moment from your co-host here. That was one of the first books I read that I actually cried when he died. It hit me. It was very important. It was like, he was one of the companions and he died. It was, you know, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. These are all heroes. Why would one of them die? So, I love it. There's dragons. There's lances. <laughs> there's dragon lances. <laughs> There are tropes that I like, like having like an or organized order of wizards. I kind of like that trope, even though they're almost always jerks. There is something that I kind of <laughs> like about that trope of having to navigate that council of jerks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned handing off your Dragonlance books. What is your experience with Dragonlance? I don't think I've ever actually played in a Dragonlance game. I definitely read the books, um, definitely the original trilogy and probably the follow-up trilogy. Any of the books beyond that was like a smattering here or there. In a lot of ways, I wish I could remember the exact timeline of things, but I have a feeling I read Dragonlance before I was introduced to D&D. So it introduced a lot of the concepts that are integral to D&D to me as a player. I've always struggled with the idea of how to play in a Dragonlance game because I know the story of the characters who do the big important things. I've read their story. I know this is the party of the people who are the true heroes of the lands. But how does my character fit in this story? And I think that's been a problem that TSR and Wizards have had some issues with before. Because it really is a setting where you have to give people permission to be the big name people. And the problem is, is even when they have done something like, okay, here's the War of the Lands, let's go a generation later, they end up publishing something that ends up giving you the heroes of that generation later. So you're like, okay, well, we're going to go another generation later, and now your PCs can be these heroes. And then they detail the heroes of that generation. So it's like... I hear people say this stuff about the Forgotten Realms, but I think it's more relevant in Dragonlance because there is always this epic good versus evil story. Once you do enter the big heroes into the story, it is harder to make room for them. So I think the biggest thing is just telling people, this is your space to have your PCs be the big heroes. I think in the Forgotten Realms, even though you do have these iconic named characters that come from the stories... The Forgotten Realms is big enough yeah. without a central, like, it doesn't have, not that not that Dragonlance has a Sauron, but it has a one major evil thing that all of the players are fighting against, whereas in Forgotten Realms, except when you're doing, like, 
War of the Dragon Queen with Tiamat or something. Yeah. For the most part, there's not one big bad that right. everyone is working against. You have the stories that are happening with these characters over here, the stories that are happening with these characters over here, which leaves room for big stories to happen for characters in other places. Whereas in Dragonlance, this is the big story. This is the big thing. So how do you work out a way for the PCs to be important in that story? I'm actually really interested to see where Shadow of the Dra uh, Dark Queen goes, because it sounds like they are specifically going to be setting this in Salamnia during the War of the Lance, where your characters are stopping a specific thing from happening, which I think is the right thing to do, like setting it during an epic time period and saying this thing needed to happen so that the War of the Lance could end, and you are the people that got that thing to happen. Carving that out to begin with is good instead of just saying, here is the setting, figure out where to put your people. Let's be blunt here. It is very hard for most game campaigns to get to the finish line. Yeah. And a setting like Dragonlands very, very much has a finish line that the players should be going for. To have that epic storyline, you need to get to that finish line. So when I talk about the fact that I played a Tyranny of the Dragon, mm -hmm. the, the Tiamat campaign. Yeah. That GM, she like shoved us along that level path to yeah. get us to the point where we could actually fight those epic battles in the end because we very much wanted to have the experience of going from zeros to heroes and fight the biggest evil in the land, but that wasn't going to happen if we had played a traditional pace for the campaign. So I think that's something to be aware of when you're delving into something like Dragonlance. Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of um, Star Wars and that you kind of need a face for the villainy. You don't just want to fight generic dragon army troops or a generic dragon. You need someone like Dragon High Lord Kityara as your enemy. You need somebody yeah. to be that face with some personality as the villain, which it looks like they're doing with uh, Shadow of the Dark Queen with uh, Soth, which is a pretty good villain to use as your primary villain for the storyline. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other settings that we want to shout out? To be fair, the settings I am most familiar with are the ones we've already covered, Eberron and Forgotten Realms, but I do want to give a shout out to Pathfinder's Galarian. Again, I know this is not technically Dungeons and Dragons, but it is a spiritual cousin, and if there's anything reading up on the history of RPGs has taught me is that there's a lot of crossover between games and their settings. Mm -hmm. The only thing that makes Galarian not D&D is that it uses Pathfinder as a system which in its early development stages was actually called D&D 3.75. <laughs> they couldn't legally use that name, yeah. but in their development of this the game, that's what they called it. Mm -hmm. I also want to be upfront that I'm not an expert on Galarian by any stretch of the imagination. I've played through the first part of the Kingmaker campaign as a tabletop, um, a bunch of one-shots, and I've played both of the Pathfinder video games, which make very enthusiastic use of the setting. It was essentially born in 2007 when Paizo needed to pivot away from creating adventures for D&D and instead use their own setting. So I think it's worth giving a shout out to. My first encounter with Galarian was in 2007. I started, um, I, I transferred my subscription from uh, Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine over to the Adventure Paths. So Varicia, which is that corner where the Rise of the Rune Lords takes place, is probably 
my favorite part of Galarian because I just got kind of used to that area. So you have like the native people that are there. You have the Shalaxians that, you know, moved into the territory and kind of took some of it over. You have like the native barbarian people in that region. And it was kind of an interesting mixture of those. There's some, you know, cities that have their own, you know, quirks in that region. I liked all of that. The other thing that I got very used to from running Pathfinder Society, because in 2008, I was at Gen Con and I was one of the very first Pathfinder Society GMs at Gen Con that year when they rolled it out. And I got really used to Absalom, the city, you know, the, the primary city of the setting, because a lot of the Pathfinder Society adventures revolved around that. And also like all of the five countries that are the main, you know, ones that are driving a lot of the narrative in that early time. No, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't you tell us about Midgard? I should touch on Midgard because Midgard is what I'm currently running. That is Kobold Press's setting. I should have looked up exactly how long it's been around, but it was another thing where uh, Wolfgang Barr had actually started doing, he had a project called Open Design, and it was crowdfunding before there was crowdfunding, where he was basically <laughs> just saying, hey, pay me this much, and if we reach this level, then I will put out a source book on this. A lot of the adventures that he was doing, because most of them were, you know, adventures, were drawing upon the setting that he's been using himself for years. After a while, you know, like um, when they had the magazine Kobold Quarterly that he was putting out, like articles would start to reference places like Zobek, which is his primary city. The more he did that, the more he brought other people in to flesh out other parts of it, and it became its own thing. I think the most extensive blossoming of it was there was actually a uh, campaign setting guide that came out for Pathfinder, and there was a lot of Pathfinder first edition products for it, and then once we hit fifth edition, it just blew up with fifth edition products. It is very much an Eastern European feeling um, setting, but it also has a lot of Northern Africa, Middle Eastern flavor too. There's, you know, like a little bit of Mediterranean. So it's kind of like your Eastern European as it trails off into like the Middle Eastern regions. And there aren't a lot of direct allegories. Like the Dragon Empire is not meant to be any one specific country, but it definitely has more of the Southern feel to it than it does the Eastern European feel. But then you also have an entire country ruled by vampires, which definitely feels Eastern European. <laughs> I, I will say that where our game is located feels very Mediterranean to me. I really like it because it is a lot of what, for example, the Forgotten Realms did in first edition, where it is flavored a certain way, but it's not obviously trying to be, it's not saying this is specifically France or this is specifically this. It's just taking some folklore from specific areas and kind of mixing it around there. The Norse gods that show up, even though the, the setting is called Midgard, they tend to use the Germanic names more than they do the Norse names because that's mm -hmm. more of the Eastern European feel for things there. Baba Yaga is a very big thing in the setting, and I love Baba Yaga. There is an essay that Wolfgang Barr wrote talking about his ideas for setting design, and it is basically saying you want enough in the setting that people feel like they can put almost anything in there, but you don't want it so open that they feel like there's no structure to it. Right. And I really feel like that's really what they've kind of hit on with this. If you really want an adventure that's going to take you on a tour of a bunch of the countries and give you a good feel, the Empire of the Ghouls adventure is a really good thing for that because it starts off in Zobek and then it kind of takes you all over the place in the setting. So you get a taste of what these different countries are doing and, you know, what's going on in all of them. That is one thing I wish more settings had a good, like, 
here is an adventure that'll take you like from first to 12th level or whatever and it will show you what the setting is about you know it's going to take you all over the place and kind of give you a big overview of the setting it would be useful to have that for more settings yeah i definitely agree so that is probably my uh, big pitch on midgard do you have any other thoughts on midgard since you've been playing in it i'm enjoying it so far I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what is contained in the setting. Like, I'm still a bit fuzzy on where Kazina is actually from. <laughs> it's a city somewhere that the the dragons have control of because the big, bad, obnoxious dragon dudes like came in and did bad things and she had to leave. Well, that's another thing that I like is it is more of a dark fantasy setting where it's like the dragon empire is not a good place, but it's also not as actively oppressive as say like the vampires. So it is one of those things where it's like, okay, we can kind of do good within this country that isn't great itself. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm enjoying the political shenanigans mm -hmm. we found our characters to be part of. And Yurazaza <laughs> seems like she's not the worst dragon in the world. I think there's another setting that both of us have had a little bit of uh, experience with. Would you like to talk about that? So we should probably talk about the streets of Avalon. Mm-hmm which our mutual friend Brett Blazinski from the former podcast Gaming and BS published with Encoded Designs. It's the Streets of Avalon. It's his homebrew setting that he's put together and put into a form that could be published. And I feel like it's almost his love letter to Lankmar. Mm -hmm. You can probably speak a little more authoritatively on it because you've actually run a campaign in it. I was going to say, I think we've both played in, in the setting before. Yeah. I had the good fortune of having uh, Brett actually run a session at Gamehole Con for me. I was able to con Brett into running an off-the-books one-shot for <laughs> me and some friends where he did a very early version of his Iron Shoes scenario mm -hmm. for us, and it was absolutely amazing. Brett is an amazing GM. I highly recommend, if you get a chance to play with him, do that thing. Brett has a talent for rolling with whatever you throw at him. I don't know that you could frazzle him. I wouldn't push him to those limits, but he is just, he is so good at just rolling with whatever the players feed him. If you ever see Brett at a convention and you have the chance to play in one of his games, you should. I ran a campaign in Streets of Avalon. Basically, the, the general gist of it is that most of the campaign is going to take place in the city of Avalon, which is this ancient city that is basically decaying. There is a pervasive feel in the world that everything is kind of falling apart things are progressing towards the end there was a war in the past with a lot of supernatural things that a lot of fantasy elements either died out in the world or were kind of banished from the world so there is DD magic but there is not a lot of high level DD magic and you can't always like elves exist somewhere in the setting but they aren't very plentiful and the nobles have some elvish you know bloodline but they aren't really it's not like you're going to see an elf walking through the city there was a dwarven city that used to exist beneath the place and now all you're going to find down there is ruins and vaults so it's that sort of like you know we've advanced to that point in time to where some of the fantastical elements are really mythical things now it's a world in the grip of entropy oh definitely entropy is is a word that came up a lot when i was running this one of my absolute favorite things in the setting is the lamplighters, which are these eyeless things that just come out at night and light all the lamps in the city. And they are 
basically they are all linked. All of their minds are linked. So if you try and pull shenanigans on one of them, you're probably going to be in trouble because all of them around their, you know, in their cell are going to understand that you tried to pull a fast one on them. <laughs> they will trade information for unspeakably horrible things if you are willing to actually approach them and talk to them. But it is a great framing device for the uh, for the setting. A lot of the actual setting book is kind of like a toolkit for building your neighborhood. So it's not giving you a ton of this is an existing neighborhood. These are exactly who lives here. It's more like these are the guilds that could be in influencing this neighborhood and pick this many of them. And these are the ones that are influencing this. You should never, ever trust the Griffins, which are the city watch because they're all terrible people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's that's what's a lot of fun. That's what we did in our campaign. We built out our particular neighborhood and then kind of dove into that story. And then possibly the absolute best thing in it is that the Sanitation Guild uses Atyugs. So there are like <laughs> basically domesticated Atyugs in the setting. So I don't know what more you want. There are domesticated Atyugs in the setting. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Streets of Avalon is a fantastic setting. I, I kind of wish I could do more with it. I just haven't had the opportunity. So we should probably... Now that we've kind of gone through most of the settings that we know a lot about, at least touch on some of the other settings that are out there. What's really rough to me is we started off talking about this one was going to be talking about settings. Then we were going to be talking about our favorite settings. And then we realized that I have way too many favorite settings. <laughs> so first okay. off, I kind of want to point out, we will probably be doing another show talking about settings that we would like to run in that we haven't had a chance to. If you have not heard your favorite setting, it may still come up in that show. I'm not going to guarantee that it's going to come up in that show. <laughs> Feel free to tell us how terrible we are with our taste and settings. But before we left, I really, I wanted to touch on Spelljammer, Ravenloft, and Planescape. Because those are all really interesting settings in that in 2nd edition, there was this, not only were there a whole bunch of settings, but those specific settings started to weave the settings together. Yeah. And really what we're seeing now in D&D &D is saying D&D &D is this multiverse. Yeah, this stuff's set in the Forgotten Realms, but all of this stuff is part of the same multiverse. So you could go here and experience this in this world. Spelljammer and Ravenloft and Planescape really started that idea. Ravenloft did it by saying, we're going to take things from every setting and trap them here. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be adventuring with people from a bunch of different worlds or... You might be, you know, people from the Forgotten Realms that wander into Lord Soth's realm in Ravenloft and dealing with vampire kenders. That was a thing. It's not a pleasant thing. <laughs> vampire kenders are very sad. But Planescape and Spelljammer got more into the traveling between worlds. And what's really funny is people don't necessarily always realize that Spelljammer is one of the first second edition settings. Like very early in second edition, they were like, well, let's just connect... Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance with the Spelljammer thing. I really like the updates they've made to it because having this kind of like weave in and out of space and the astral plane feels a little better to me than saying that every world has a giant crystal shell around it. <laughs> but I think Planescape probably made the biggest impact on all of these because it had so much personality. It was about traveling the planes that had already existed in D&D, but it was about specific cities and specific factions and it had a very specific way of telling its story we actually in tristan's silua campaign 
I think he pretty much wholesale used Planescape because mm-hmm. we had to go to essentially Planescape to rescue Nyx mm-hmm. when she was kidnapped by the Black Company. Uh, and, you know, it was it was definitely us going to another plane to rescue her and having to navigate these cultural and societal rules that we had no idea about to get her out without making the situation worse. And then we even got to fly in an astral ship <laughs> through the astral plane and see a dead god floating in the sky. That has got to be the absolute most iconic thing that Planescape introduced was this idea that when gods die, their corpses just float in the astral. And yeah. I love that image. That is that is so ingrained in me as part of a truism in D&D now that I just love that. We fought a battle on the body of a dead god. It was amazing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just great. I love that. Like I said, it's... I want to touch on those because I think there are times, even when somebody doesn't play in those settings as their only setting, I know a lot of people that wove those things in there. Like, some people just went on a trip on a Spelljammer in the middle of, like, a Forgotten Realms or a Greyhawk campaign. Some people would travel to Sigil and meet members of these different things, even if it was only for some part of the campaign, and then come back. Because they were transitional settings, they touched on a lot of other settings when everything else was something, some other focus. Yeah. Also, in this modern day, I would just like to point out there's something really interesting about all of these factions in Planescape that have extremely stratifying philosophical (laughs) opinions that are sometimes so extreme that they don't make any sense, but they so desperately believe in them. I'm not going to draw any conclusions, but it feels more relevant now than it did in the 90s. (laughs) I think at this point, we can probably say, we'll revisit settings in the future, and it's okay to move on. (laughs) Yes. So, downtime research. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, podcasts, whatever. It'll be something we think will enhance your D&D experience. In case you haven't heard, (laughs) the D&D movie Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, starring Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez and more, has had to shift (laughs) release dates. I share this because it's freaking hilarious to realize that even Paramount Pictures can't schedule a game night. Oh my god, it truly is a D&D movie now. <laughs> like, given that this is a big Hollywood studio, I doubt this was done on purpose, but as a longtime gamer and cat herder, I would be so happy if it actually was done on purpose. <laughs> Basically, they moved it from the beginning of March to the end of March. So maybe they'll get to play in the month of March. <laughs> I would love it if there's just like part of the part of the movie where someone's character just disappears and they never explain where they went. And then they're just back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they'll go that far. But no. <laughs> I mean, this is definitely a little <sighs> more like. The feel I get from the trailer is definitely more Guardians of the Galaxy yes. than Deadpool. If yeah. they were going Deadpool, like, <laughs> yes, somebody yeah. would disappear in the middle of a fight <laughs> and then show up a few scenes later. <laughs> Since Dragonlance Shadow of the Dark Queen is coming out, I wanted to plug 
the 3.5 books that came out that have like a ton of useful information in case you get that book and you want to run something beyond the adventure that they present in that particular book. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the ones that I would definitely recommend is the Legend of the Twins source book. The Legend of the Twins is the one that presents like alternate timelines. So it's going to identify a lot of places in the history of the Dragonlance world where this is a good jumping off point for your characters to be the heroes instead of what happened in the books. There's even a few good places like if you want to play through the War of the Lands as presented in the Shadow of the Dragon Queen book, but then you want to look like 20 years out. There's good spots there where it will tell you like, oh, this is what happened here, but this is what you could have happened. So I just think, I think that's a great product. It was definitely one of my favorites. And the other one I was going to point out is there's also a War of the Lance source book, which was probably one of the most comprehensive overall Dragonlance source books that came out. It basically tells you what was going on in every part of the continent at every point in the war, like from a couple of years before the war up until, you know, the, the end of the books. And I think that's a really nice one too. Not so that it will constrain what you're doing, but just so that if you kind of wonder if they go off the beaten track from the adventure and try and steer over here and you don't have any idea what might be going on over there, this book will probably tell you what was going on over there. <laughs> Those are my suggestions for this recording. So we've used up all our resources. I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope that you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.